Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ag Innovation News Podcast, presented by the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute of Minnesota. I'm Dan Scogan, your host for the Ag Innovation News Podcast. And guests on the Ag Innovation News Podcast will shed light on innovations in value-added agriculture, will highlight important voices and work that's being done throughout the Minnesota ag sector, and educate the public about resources and organizations that support Minnesota agriculture. Today we'll be talking about shared-use kitchens, commercial kitchens, and food entrepreneurs with Jason Robinson. Jason is AURI's Business Development Director of Food. In this role, Jason works with food clients to develop their businesses to further the value-added development of Minnesota's agricultural products. Prior to joining AURI, Jason spent 19 years in corporate research and development at a Fortune 500 food manufacturer as a product and process developer across a number of food technologies. Jason was recognized as a collaborative technical business leader and later led some R&D teams in snack bars, fruit snacks, salty snacks, snack bar packaging, and meat snacks. Jason also served as chief technical officer of a small entrepreneurial business built within the confines of the large CPG, which has shaped his passion and desire to provide the technical guidance necessary for any food company to be successful, a key tenet of the AURI mission. Jason brings a wealth of knowledge and experience in the end-to-end new product development process, including product recipe and process development, product stability and shelf life management, cost reduction strategies, consumer-focused concept and idea development, process scale-up and commercialization, experiment design, sensory evaluation, quality systems evaluation and management, label development, and food safety compliance. Jason is also a certified Scrum Master, experienced in guiding teams through the agile product development process, and we welcome Jason Robinson to today's Ag Innovation News Podcast. Jason, welcome to the program, and I just have to ask first questions first, lots to get through today, but what is a Scrum Master? Well, hi, Dan. It's good to hear from you again, and congratulations on retirement, but we're glad to have you continue to be a part of the podcast. I appreciate that. To answer your question, a Scrum Master is a specific role on an agile product development team that's essentially similar to a project manager, but it's it's somebody who's certified in using a specific agile product development methodology known as Scrum that is typically used in software development and on software development teams to accelerate the commercialization process. Great. Now we have that defined. Let's move on to the food report the Commercial Kitchen and Shared Use Kitchen report. If I'm not mistaken, Jason, this report was created as part of AURI's Ag Innovation Partnership or AIP program. Is that correct? And could you tell us a little more about that program? Absolutely. And you're correct. It was developed as a part of the Ag Innovation Partnership program, or as you also mentioned, the AIP. The AIP program, which is now going into its sixth iteration in 2023, is focused on catalyzing innovation, generating new ideas, and supporting collaborative partnerships that advance Minnesota's value-added agriculture industry, most specifically in opportunities that we as AURI staff, and through our industry awareness and network connections, have really identified as these areas need a boost in awareness to make progress. Deliverables have typically included applied research studies and guides or tools that provide specific benefit to private companies or to the larger ecosystem. And all of that output is in the public domain. 
In practice, we publish a list of questions or challenges for which we are seeking third-party proposals, though we'll also consider novel ideas brought to us for funding. And speaking of funding, because a key ingredient of the program is partnership, AURI expects that proposers contribute a minimum of 25% to the total costs of the funded project. Past examples have included the development of entrepreneur guides, such as how to select packaging for food products, defining a food product shelf life, demystifying digital marketing and e-commerce, and best practices in sourcing ingredients locally. In the applied research arena, we've funded research into the protein quality of wild rice in an effort to help this Minnesota native ag product compete more successfully against other plant-based sources of protein. Go to our website to learn more about the program and see some of the resources that we've developed. All in all, I'd argue it's been a very successful program that supports our mission of driving ag product utilization. So when I hear that it's in its sixth iteration, is it six years it's been going on? Or does AURI take on a new iteration when one presents itself? Typically, we do this annually. I believe there may have been one period of time where we missed a few months and we got off our our original cycle. But generally speaking, we propose these AIP challenges on an annual basis. So today, I understand we're going to talk more about shared use kitchens, commercial kitchens, and food entrepreneurs. Why does AURI think that's important to investigate this particular topic? Thanks for the question, Dan. I really love answering questions like this because what they can do is it can help a listener understand the motivating environmental factors. So not just the what, but the environment that surrounds the what. So I'll start and I'll, and I'll break this up into three real reasons why we felt it was important. So first, at the time we kicked off the work, the AURI Packaged Foods team, which includes me, senior food scientist Lali Okino, food scientist Ben Swanson, and our project manager Ashley Hargath, had been hearing through the grapevine about the closure or pending closure of several shared-use commercial kitchens in the Twin Cities area. So after digging a little and asking around, what we kept hearing was that it was a financial issue. Ultimately, that there was not enough revenue from an inherently volatile customer base, which we know as the scaling food entrepreneur, in order to pay the bills and really to get enough help. So that's kind of the first reason. Second reason is, is about four months prior to kicking off the request for project proposals, AURI had a conversation with Minnesota State Senator Tori Westrom, who was the chair of the Ag and Rural Development Finance and Policy Committee at the time. He spent some time talking to us as an organization about the changes in the cottage foods law in Minnesota, which allows individuals to make and sell certain non-potentially hazardous food and canned goods in Minnesota without a license. Senator Westrom commented during his talk that as he was shepherding these changes through the legislature, he kept hearing from his constituents about how there just weren't enough commercial kitchens in rural Minnesota which, because of how they are designed, constructed, and operated, are required for businesses to scale from the cottage foods level or the farmer's market level to wholesale distribution. And the third reason is that as ecosystem developers, AURI and its partner organizations such as Naturally Minnesota and the Minnesota Department of Agriculture hear constantly from food entrepreneurs about the two primary challenges that they face. One, where can I make my stuff? And two, how can I find funding to keep making that stuff? 
Two years prior to the release of this report, we had also conducted research around the economic value of investment in food and beverage manufacturing in Minnesota, where we learned that, and I quote, Minnesotans on average reap more economic reward or state GDP growth from investments in the food and beverage manufacturing industry than from any other industry in the state, and that a 5% gain in food and beverage manufacturing output could result in an increase of up to $11 billion in the state's GDP and add an estimated 160,000 more jobs. So those are big numbers. Whether you believe the numbers or not, the reality is that this research shows that the impact of food and beverage manufacturing in Minnesota is gigantic, due in large part to the vertical integration of the industry in the state. So you're probably asking, well, why is this relevant to the topic of shared use commercial kitchens? Those businesses that will drive the need for investment in larger scale food and bev manufacturing need to start somewhere. And typically that is in a commercial kitchen, whether it's shared use or a private commercial kitchen space. So if we don't have enough of those, as we have heard, that Minnesota may not have the homegrown businesses to realize the potential GDP growth from the industry. After digesting all of this information, we started to ask ourselves really that, that fundamental question that guided the research, which is why aren't there enough commercial kitchens in Minnesota? Why are they closing? Is there a difference between urban and rural models? And how can the kitchen business model improve? We saw the AIP as a perfect opportunity to learn more. There's a lot of stuff in there to digest, Jason, but I think if I could rephrase some of it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, first of all, you were going out to see if what you were hearing was actually happening. And secondly, what would happen if an investment occurred? And I think that quote you gave us on a 5% investment generating $11 billion in the state's GDP and more, what you were hearing was factual. Is that a true statement? That is a true statement based on economic analysis. And on that same economic analysis, that 5% investment would generate a lot of jobs and a lot of GDP. That is correct. And just to clarify, that is total impact to the state, not just in the food and beverage businesses, but also all the tangential businesses and business services that support the food and beverage industry. So we're talking about increasing the output of food and beverage manufacturing means you're going to have an impact on the companies that provide seed genetics, the companies that provide transportation and logistics services, the companies that manufacture, the businesses that are building the brands, the suppliers that are needed to provide ingredients to the finished products, goods companies. So it's, it's because of the way that Minnesota is structured with such a close tie to production agriculture, we can realize significant benefit as a state because of an increase in output from food and beverage manufacturing and thus investment in the manufacturing industry. Maybe before I ask you why shared use kitchens are so important to the Minnesota food business and that ecosystem, maybe just a little definition. A shared use kitchen, what is that as compared to maybe a commercial kitchen or are they the same? I think it's important to note that a shared use commercial kitchen is a commercial kitchen that's intended to help food businesses find the commercial space and equipment necessary to commercially prepare or handle food offered for wholesale, resale, or distribution. So in other words, a shared use kitchen or a shared use commercial kitchen is a business that provides the facilities to help a food business get licensed and successfully scale. 
Well, then you go back to the potential economic impact, and maybe this question doesn't need to be asked, but why are shared-use kitchens so important to the Minnesota food business? It's interesting because a business that is looking to scale from cottage foods level, where most sales are made in a farmer's market and they go direct to the end consumer, to a wholesale market. So when they're scaling to a wholesale market, they're moving from direct sales to the end consumer at a farmer's market and moving into a model where the food business sells to a third party who then sells to the end consumer. So moving from cottage foods level to wholesale marketing requires licensing by the state. The purpose of the licensing process, so it's important to talk about why we license food businesses in the first place. Purpose of the licensing process is to ensure that the business is selling safe food products to the public, especially since in a wholesale market, the end consumer doesn't have that direct interaction with the food business making the product. So the consumer isn't asking questions of the food maker. That licensing process includes review of the package label information, intended target market and business model, and most importantly, a thorough inspection of the producing location. By contrast, cottage foods producers are allowed to produce their products for sale in a home kitchen because they have a licensing exemption. But to reiterate, as soon as they want to scale up and become a wholesale producer, the home kitchen is no longer an option and they need to produce in a commercial space. And the reason why cottage foods producer may want to scale to a wholesale food manufacturer is because there are restrictions around the sales channels that a cottage foods producer can access. They can't ship product across state lines. Frankly, they can't ship product directly to consumers anyway. They need to pass the products off in person to the end user or the end consumer. And they can't. And those sales have to be direct to the end consumer. So they can't sell, for instance, a cottage foods producer making muffins. They can't package and sell them to a coffee shop who then sells them to the customers at a coffee shop. The cottage foods business has to sell directly to the end consumer. I want to circle back, Jason, and talk about who's reading this report, who's finding it useful. But I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to the Ag Innovation News podcast presented by the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute of Minnesota. Our guest today, as we talk about shared-use kitchens, commercial kitchens, food entrepreneurs, and a recent report that indicates what we need in the state and how we need to better support the food industry, is Jason Robinson. Jason works for AURI and is AURI's Business Development Director in Food. So Jason, let's go back to the report itself. Who's reading it and who's finding value in the report? I think it's important to note that this report sounds like it might be intended to directly support the efforts of food entrepreneurs. But I think it's a little misleading in the sense that while food entrepreneurs can certainly read it and find value, to be honest, the audience for this report is not necessarily the packaged foods business itself, but rather existing or prospective commercial kitchen owners or operators, the general service provider community, and ecosystem stakeholders or partners. Like I said, of course, food businesses will find the content interesting and relevant, but our goal here was to help bring clarity to the following questions. One, what is broken, as we thought, in the model for shared use kitchens based on our observations of the community challenges? Two, what factors contribute to the success or failure of these operations in Minnesota? And how do these challenges differ in between rural and urban communities? And then three, what can ecosystem partners and stakeholders do at a state level to foster growth and development in this sector statewide? And that last question, that third question, 
around what can ecosystem partners and stakeholders do. That is really why this report is targeted not directly to the food businesses themselves, but to the ecosystem partners and stakeholders. So in other words, the project output was meant to catalyze value-added activity in a sector that would provide support to the food entrepreneurs themselves. Well, let's try to break some of that out and learn a little more about what the researchers found. What can be improved in the model for shared-use commercial kitchens? Like you alluded to earlier, Dan, this is a question of where do we start? There's a lot to unpack. But without getting into a complete rehash of a webinar that AURI hosted in February of 2023, I'll try to provide a high-level executive summary of some of those key learnings. Generally speaking, our research indicates that the model itself of commercial kitchens isn't necessarily broken, but that success of the kitchens depends on the right environmental factors and operating resources. We found that the challenges in different regions of the state, whether in urban or rural communities, are uniquely nuanced, but aren't wholly unique in the sense that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution, but regardless of location, they all suffer from very similar challenges. Specific to the kitchens themselves, the business models tend to really suffer from these two main challenges, which are actually connected. The first is cash flow and revenue generation. At the end of the day, shared use kitchens rely on an inherently volatile customer base. And I said this earlier, this is the early stage food entrepreneur that either fails in the market or succeeds and graduates to a higher output production facility. So in other words, what this means is that the early stage food entrepreneur, which is who these kitchens cater to, either fails in the market and they go away, or they're successful and they need to expand their manufacturing away from a commercial kitchen. These businesses are also typically self-funded and can't afford high kitchen rental fees, whether in an urban or a rural location. Our research showed that typical rental fees are in the $15 to $20 per hour rental fee range. And since revenue is tied to the number of users, there is a hard physical cap to the number of users since there are only so many hours in the day. So in summary, there's barely enough revenue that a shared kitchen produces to pay for the overhead costs of a building, which would include rent or lease and their utilities, and more than one or two kitchen staff, and then on top of it to pull any profit. So increasing revenue and or dropping overhead or staffing expenses are two sides of the same coin here. This could look like the state subsidizing kitchen rental fees or a donated building to reduce your facility overhead, or maybe a kitchen manager that is shared among multiple locations. The second challenge that we wanted to identify is tied in part to the customer base of these kitchens. And that is that these early stage food businesses are needy. What that means is that they tend to require a lot of handholding to gain entry to and be successful in the market, which oftentimes falls onto an already stretched kitchen manager. So we felt that a kitchen manager community that could share best practices may actually help to defray some of that load on an individual kitchen manager. But even more helpful would probably be the sharing of a business support resource across multiple kitchens so that that cost can be shared and the responsibility on a kitchen manager could be lessened. Jason, I think early on in our conversation today, you talked a little bit about factors that contribute to the success or failure of these operations and that you were kind of looking to see if there was much difference between rural and urban communities and where these kitchens were set up. What did you find? What factors are contributing to success or failure? 
Maybe you've touched on that a little bit. And then are there major differences between urban and rural? To answer that last question first, in general, there are not a lot of differences between urban and rural locations, save for the geographic consequences of a rural location. I'm going to put a pin in that and we'll get back to it. First, though, generally speaking, high overhead costs and the expectation of driving a profit tend to be the most challenging for a shared-use commercial kitchen, regardless of location. Like I said before, these are not high-revenue-generating operations, so any way that revenue can be boosted or expenses cut will be helpful. If the kitchen is structured as a nonprofit with philanthropic support, the low revenue tends to be less detrimental to the overall operation. For example, the Good Acre in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, is a nonprofit structure where the building was donated, so there are no rental or lease costs. The revenue challenges are amplified by a for-profit model, and our research found that the most successful kitchens tend to be those that have a nonprofit structure or provide wraparound services that provide more support to the food business than simply a place to make their stuff. But getting back to this, this concept of what's specific about rural locations that are challenging, I would tell you that the roadmap to a successful shared kitchen in a rural community really isn't different from the metro. What is different is the demand profile, or what we'll call the density of the local user pipeline. In other words, the kitchen demand profile, which translates to its financial performance in a specific location, is tied to the local population density, with potential users that are spread across a larger geographic area in a rural location it is more challenging to get users into a specific central kitchen location. So there is a need for rural locations to create economic development partnerships that can channel demand to the kitchen over a much broader geographic region. Because like I said, revenue is tied directly to how many users are in that space. So with that last point in mind, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the matchmaking component of food business and commercial kitchen can also be a challenge, and probably more so in a rural location with lower population density. And when I say matchmaking, what I mean is that there is no regularly updated or live index or directory of commercial kitchens in the state. In other words, there's no eHarmony for commercial kitchens. The Minnesota Department of Ag has a list, but it is an opt-in, meaning that it is not actively managed and requires the kitchens themselves to submit their information to be included on the list. So it would make me wonder then if this is something the state of Minnesota at the legislative or policy level should be addressing. Can there be something done at the state level to foster growth and development in this sector statewide? Based on the research, we think there is. And of course, just like everything, it starts with more money. And, and I say that with a grin because I think that's everyone's first response. But let me be more specific. What we really need to do is, is continue to brainstorm on this what can be done question, but along two different yet parallel lines of thinking. So the first line of thinking is around what can be done to address the cash flow and revenue generation challenges seen by existing commercial kitchens. It's not as easy as just throwing money into it and hoping that everything works itself out. Ideas that the researchers put forth include maybe a cost-sharing program that essentially allows the kitchens to charge higher rental fees while the user sees no net change in what they're being charged. We also saw an opportunity for the development of a comprehensive 
an actively managed resource database that provides those already stretched kitchen managers with the tools to provide on the ground training and guidance to food businesses. We also think that consistency in the regulatory framework for kitchens across the state can be very helpful in terms of at least knowing what needs to be done. And then any other financial incentives or affordable financing vehicles, such as revolving lines of credit or maybe tax incentives that can support ongoing operations. Specific to rural locations, encouraging those partnerships with local economic development organizations to improve the user demand profile is also something that should be considered. Ultimately, this is about driving awareness of those specific locations. Now, the second line of thinking is focused around what can be done to improve access to these vital resources for food businesses. In other words, how can we get more of them where they need to be, the kitchens themselves? We think it starts with creating a clear and concise playbook for transforming existing and underutilized spaces into commercial kitchens, or those that are already built and thus don't necessarily put the cost of a building into the pro forma of managing a commercial kitchen and, and generating revenue and profit. So for instance, the structural changes that need to be made to create a food safe environment for production are not always clear and need to be hunted down. So creating a clear and concise playbook that an aspiring kitchen owner or operator can refer to, to know exactly what they need to do to be compliant would be an excellent tool. Another opportunity is in creating and maintaining not only a living directory of commercial kitchens, but also a directory of spaces that could be transformed into commercial kitchen spaces. And specific to rural locations, we think that quantifying geography-based demand can help aspiring kitchen owner operators put new kitchens in sites that could drive the highest potential amount of traffic. There are certainly more ideas, but the last recommendation I'll highlight is the formation of an action-oriented task force to continue brainstorming and ultimately implement some of these recommendations. We've taken the first step here, which is gathering information, but more work needs to be done. Well, the report is certainly out there. The information is now available to the general public. Some have read it and are digesting it and thinking about next steps. From the AURI perspective, Jason, what's next where commercial kitchens are concerned for AURI? Dan, as we talked about at the beginning of our discussion, the purpose of this research was to catalyze learning and activity and collaborations around the shared use commercial kitchen sector. As an organization, AURI is set up to inform and influence sector growth, but I would argue that it's highly unlikely we would be, for instance, the owner operator of a kitchen. We would create content to go into the playbook that was discussed or create the tools for a resource database, and that's more in line with our mission. Ultimately, I think the next step is participating in and potentially even leading the task force that I mentioned and that was recommended by the research team. But as an organization, AURI isn't ultimately set up to be the operator of, of a space for food entrepreneurs to make their products. I think it's also important to note that we continue to focus on what else can the state do to support food businesses as they scale. Because we know that this idea of manufacturing space, right-sized manufacturing space for food businesses is not a Minnesota problem, but a national problem. So if we can help identify solutions 
and potentially influence decision makers, change makers, and the legislature to invest in solutions, we can not only retain businesses here in Minnesota as they grow, but possibly attract businesses away from other locations in the country because Minnesota might be the state that actually figures it out for the first time and provides a real solution to the problem that the vast majority of food businesses have, which is how do I scale effectively and where do I make my stuff as I start to get more and more orders? And Jason, you mentioned a couple of times in that comment about right size scaling. And for a food entrepreneur, their right size is going to change as their business grows. Is that correct? You're 100% correct, Dan. I like to use the term right-sized because other terms that I've heard, whether it's mid-scale, mid-range, larger scale, they tend to imply automation. And in many cases, automation isn't necessarily the answer. But having a location that can incorporate a semi-automated production line with simply more space for manufacturing might be all that you need in order to launch into Target nationally, for instance. Moving all the way up to the next level, say at a contract manufacturer, may not necessarily be the best thing for your business, in large part because contract manufacturers have this requirement called a minimum order quantity or an MOQ, which is something that you'll hear in the industry. And what an MOQ is, is it's the minimum amount that a manufacturer will produce regardless of how much you actually need in order for that manufacturer simply to recover their costs or make a small profit. And I think it's important to note that as a business is moving from that farmer's market level or from the local distribution level up to a more regional or national scale business, that MOQ, that minimum order quantity, may exceed the amount of product you actually need to fulfill your orders. So now you might be left with 40% more product than you needed to meet your orders, and you need to figure out what to do with it before it expires and you have to just throw it away. So this whole idea of right-sized manufacturing is really about matching your demand with a manufacturing strategy that is suitable for your needs and can scale as you generate more and more orders and more demand and scale your business outside of where you are today. Does that make sense, Dan? It does make sense. And it excites me, I guess, for someone who is not in the food ecosystem. But imagine if you would, if the state of Minnesota figures this out and gets it right, and then the potential economic impact that that could have. I'm right with you, Dan. And frankly, the term that you used, that it excites you, that's exactly what we as an organization are trying to do with the AIP program, is to generate activity, catalyze innovation, and really generate excitement about potential opportunities that can grow our state. So thank you for leading right into that comment and the reason why we do this work in the first place. And Jason, where can they find the report? Where can they learn more about commercial kitchens in Minnesota? The report, the articles that have been written by our stellar communications team in the Ag Innovation News, and the webinar that was hosted in February 2023 that I alluded to earlier, are all available on our website at auri.org. Another great resource that I should highlight here is a national website known as the Food Corridor, 
which hosts a significant amount of resources for shared use commercial kitchens. And then of course, our local ecosystem building organization, Naturally Minnesota, is also heavily involved in this space. And they actually have an event coming up here in the Twin Cities to kick off the summer. So I would certainly encourage anyone who's interested to sign up and become a member. Ultimately though, if there's any interest in continuing the conversation or learning more, they can always pop me an email. And my contact information is available right on the auri.org website. Just go under the staff drop down. Absolutely. Jason Robinson, thanks for your time today. It's been very informative. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. I enjoyed it. We've been visiting with Jason Robinson, AURI's Business Development Director in Food, talking about shared use kitchens, commercial kitchens, and the Food Entrepreneur Report that came out recently. Thanks for joining us today, and also thank you for listening to the Ag Innovation News Podcast, presented by the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute of Minnesota. I want to thank Lisa Martinez, AURI Communications Coordinator and the editor of this production. To learn more about AURI, go to auri.org.